take the first step in noticing what is wrong in your environment and fixing it. Like identify bias, identify prejudice, identify bullying, put some checks and balances in place so that you don't have as much discrimination and harassment and make sure that you're creating a culture of consent. We have this real opportunity as we're coming back together physically to really create a culture of consent. These things are happening. You may not want to believe they're happening at your company, but all of these things are happening, unfortunately. And so go look for them and fix them before they blow up in your face. Well, hey, podcast family, and welcome to episode number 283 of the L3 Leadership Podcast, where we are obsessed with helping you grow to your maximum potential and to maximize the impact of your leadership. My name is Doug Smith, and I am your host, and today's episode is brought to you by my friends at Bear Tongue Advisors. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. I'm so glad that you're here, and I hope you enjoy our content. In fact, every month we are committed to bringing you at least two episodes, one of which will be a conversation I have with a high-level leader, and the other will be a personal leadership lesson by me that I know will add value to your life. And so uh, thank you for listening. And if you've been with us for a while, thank you so much. And it would mean the world to me if you'd leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. That really does help us grow our audience and reach more leaders. So thank you in advance for that. Well, in today's episode, you'll hear my conversation with Kim Scott, and let me just tell you a little bit about her in case you're unfamiliar. Kim is the author of two books. One is called Just Work, which I just got done with, and it had a, a huge impact on my life, and it's actually the focus of this interview. And the other book that she wrote, which also had a huge impact on my life, was called Radical Candor. She's also the co-founder of a company called Radical Candor. Kim was a CEO coach at Dropbox, Qualtrics, Twitter, and other large tech companies. She was a member of the faculty at Apple University, and before that, she led AdSense, YouTube, and DoubleClick teams at Google. She also managed a pediatric clinic in Kosovo and started a diamond-cutting factory in Moscow, and she lives with her family in Silicon Valley. Obviously, an amazing resume. And again, I already mentioned it, but her books have made a huge impact on my life. And today we focus on her book, Just Work, and you're going to love our conversation. I believe both of her books are must-read for leaders. So please go out and get a copy of each of these leaders and take the time to read them. Take your team through them. I promise you and your team will be better as a result. But before we get into the conversation, just a few announcements. This episode of the L3 Leadership Podcast is sponsored by Bear Tongue Advisors. The financial advisors at Bear Tongue Advisors help educate and empower clients to make informed financial decisions. You can find out how Bear Tongue Advisors can help you develop a customized financial plan for your financial future by visiting their website at BearTongueAdvisors.com. That's B-E-R-A-T-U-N-G Advisors.com. Securities and investment products and services offered through Waddell and Reed Inc., member FINRA and SIPC. Beartongue Advisors, Waddell and Reed, and L3 Leadership are separate entities. I also want to thank our sponsor, Henny Jewelers. They're a jeweler owned by my friend and mentor, John Henny. And my wife, Laura, and I got our engagement and wedding rings through Henny Jewelers. And not only do they have great jewelry, but they also believe in and invest in people. In fact, every couple that comes to them getting engaged, they give them a book to help prepare for marriage. And we just love that about them. So if you're in need of a good jeweler, check out hennyjewelers.com. And with all that being said, let's dive right into the episode. Here's my conversation with Kim Scott. Well, hey, Kim, thank you so much for being willing to do this interview. It's a great honor to meet you and have this conversation. And why don't we just start off with you just telling us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. So I am a writer, first and foremost, and I wrote, a, I've written a couple of books. The first one was Radical Candor, 
And that one is a lot about how to, how to be a great, how to be a kick-ass boss without losing your humanity. And there's a lot about feedback in that book. And when you write a book about feedback, you're going to get a lot of it. And, uh, and so some of the feedback I got came when I was doing a radical candor presentation uh, at a company, a tech company in San Francisco. And the CEO of that company was somebody I had known for the better part of a decade, somebody I liked and respected enormously, and one of too few black women CEOs in tech. And when I finished giving the Radical Canner presentation, she said to me, look, I'm excited to roll this idea out and it's going to help me build the kind of culture I want. But I got to tell you, Kim, it's a lot harder for me to roll out Radical Canner than it is for you. She explained that when, when she gave even the most compassionate criticism, she would get slimed with the angry black woman stereotype. And I knew this was true. When she told me this, gave me this feedback. I had three revelations at the same time. The first was that I had failed to be the kind of upstander I wanted to be. I saw myself as. As I said, I had known her for the better part of a decade, and I had failed to notice in that period of time that she always showed up for every meeting, cheerful and pleasant. And believe me, in that period of time, she had, she had what to be pissed off about. And I had never really thought about the toll that must take on her. So that was the first. The second revelation was that I had failed to, I had sort of been in denial about the kinds of things that happened to me as a woman in the workplace. And that's kind of a tough thing for the author of Radical Candor to admit that I was in denial and then the third thing, and, and one of probably the most painful things, was that I had failed to be the kind of leader that I wanted to be. I had failed to be the kind of leader that would, that would prevent nonsense from getting in the way of everybody's desire to just work. So that was how I came to write the second book. Uh, the other thing I learned after Radical Candor came out was that very few people actually change their behavior because they read a book, which is not to say you shouldn't read the book. You should read the book. <laughs> But as a result of that, I started a couple of companies that help people roll the ideas out in their organizations uh, for both Radical Candor and Just Work. So I have uh, Jason Rosoff is the fabulous co-founder and CEO of Radical Candor, and Trier Bryant is the fabulous co-founder and CEO of Just Work. Yeah, and we're going to dive into your new book, Just Work, here in a second. Can you just give people a little bit of context about your corporate background? You have an incredible resume, and I just think it would, it would help people listening. Sure. So I uh, actually, my business career was one giant strategy to subsidize my novel writing habits. <laughs> it finally worked out. But I, uh, I started out, I, I did a few startups that, that failed. And then I wound up going to Google. That worked out a lot better. And uh, I led AdSense YouTube and DoubleClick teams at Google. And then I woke up one morning and sort of realized that the thing that really gave my work meaning was not cost per click, although that was going pretty well at Google, but, but it was really more around the management stuff, building these teams of people uh, where everybody could do the best work of their lives and enjoy working together. And so I was sort of struggling to figure out how I could make that my day job. And there wasn't such a role at Google, but meantime, Steve Jobs had decided to start Apple University and to throw away all their management training and start from a blank piece of paper. And a professor of mine from business school who had left Harvard to join Apple called me up and said, why don't you come and help us uh, design and teach managing at Apple? So I did that. 
And then a friend of mine from Google had become CEO of Twitter, Dick Costello, and he called me up and he said, why don't you help me design managing at Twitter? And lo and behold, managing at Twitter looked pretty much exactly like managing at Apple and managing a restaurant or managing a small <laughs> business. It's people are people. And so that was what helped me decide to write Radical Candor. Yeah. And we're not going to touch on Radical Candor a ton, but uh, I'll hold it up for everyone, at least watching on YouTube. Uh, this book was phenomenal. Kim, I love the way that you write. It's so practical, so down to earth, so many great examples. Uh, our team has been using this framework. And uh, so thank you so much for writing it. And again, if you're listening to this or watching this, please do yourself a favor and grab a copy of the book. It'll change your life and your organization's life as well. Well, Kim, I want to dive into your new book called Just Work. You've kind of gave us a prelude of what got you to write the book, but what, what big picture, what do you want people to get out of this book before we dive into the details? I, I hope that we will, that people who read this book will change the default to silence. And in tech, we talk a lot about the power of the default. And I think even like, for example, for organ donors, there's the power of the default. If you had to check, yes, very few people were organ donors. But if the default was yes and you had to opt out, then many, many more. And, and that, that saved a lot of lives. So the power of the default is intense. And I think that when it comes to those moments, which we all have at work, where something is not quite right, somebody says or does something and it feels off. How do we know what to say or what to do in those moments? No matter what our role is, whether we're the leader or the upstander or the person harmed or the person causing harm, how do we, how can we respond? So I hope, I hope to give people really practical advice as to how to respond to this stuff. Yeah. And, you know, in case someone's been living under a cave, could you just answer the question, you know, in today's world, especially in corporate, why is it important for leaders to want to create just workspaces? So there's part of it is around justice and part of it is around being more effective. So there's both a practical and, uh, and sort of, uh, uh, emotional element to, to just work. I mean, what is just work? Just work happens when we're in a work environment that optimizes for collaboration instead of coercion. And we all want, I've never met anybody who says, yeah, I really want to work in a coercive working environment. Uh, and I've actually also never met any leaders who say, yeah, I want to coerce my employees. I think, I think there's pretty broad recognition that collaboration is humanity's superpower. And if we're going to innovate, if we're going to do our best work, we need collaborative working environments, not coercive working environments. And at the same time, we also want in working environments in which people respect our individuality. And I think the vast majority of people assume that they respect other people's individuality. Again, I've never met anybody who says, yeah, what I really want is to work in kind of a 1984 style, everybody's marching in lockstep kind of, kind of work environment. So we all want the same thing. We want this just work environment. We want to be able to just do our best work. And yet something gets in the way. So what I tried to do in this book is break down what are the different things that get in the way and how can we respond to each of them in the most effective possible way. Yeah. And you mentioned six problems in the book that you go over in detail. One is bias, two is prejudice, three is bullying, four is discrimination, verbal harassment, and then physical violations. And you kick off the book by making the statements, which I thought was so good. You said, we can't fix the problems that we refuse to notice. 
And so my first question on a practical level is how can we do a better job of noticing or creating opportunities for people's voice to be heard as leaders? Yeah, I think as Kimberly Crenshaw, who came up with the term intersectionality, said, if you can't name it, you can't fix it. And so I think one of the problems that we have is that we often conflate these different problems. And so maybe we observe bias in a meeting and and then we don't know how to respond to it. We don't even know whether it's bias or prejudice or bullying. So I think beginning to to sort of disentangle these 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 different problems can help us solve them. So bias, I'm going to offer some really simple definitions. Bias is basically not meaning it. Uh, it's usually unconscious. Prejudice is meaning it. It's used, there's usually a conscious belief behind the prejudice. And I think at least for me, I often tried to imagine everything was unconscious bias, but sometimes people really do believe the nonsense they're spouting. And so what do you do? That's harder to respond to. And other times people don't have any beliefs at all. They're just being mean. They're just meaning harm. They're bullying. And so beginning to disentangle these three things, I think, can help us figure out how to respond to each one differently. Yeah. You mentioned uh, the, the term upstanders, which you use in the book. And it, it's really just people who actually call out and do something about one of these issues when they see it taking place. And I just know, you know, depending on your makeup, that's either very easy for you or it's very, very difficult. And so I, I just want to, you know, when we notice problem, what are some problems? What are some practical ways that we as leaders can address them when we see them? Yeah, so I think I'll give you an example of a, of a good upstander moment. And I want to say, by the way, it's hard for almost everybody <laughs> to be a, a good upstander. It certainly has been hard for me in the course of my career. I, don't, I actually don't know anyone for whom this is easy. But in this case, a friend of mine, Aileen Lee, she's the founder of Cowboy VC. She, she walked into a meeting with two colleagues who were men. And they sat down at the table and then people from the other side filed in. Everybody uh, from the company they were meeting with was, was a man. And the first guy sat across from the guy to Aileen's left. The guy, next guy who filed in sat across from the guy to his left. And then they filed on down the table, leaving Aileen kind of dangling by herself at the end. And in this meeting, Aileen had the expertise that was going to win her team the deal. And so she started talking and the people on the other side, the men on the other side, when they had questions, would, would direct them at her two business partners, not at her, even though she was the one talking. So raise your hand if you've seen this happen. This is the kind of thing that happens all the time. It happened once, it happened twice, it happened a third time. And Aileen's partner finally stood up and he said, you know what? why don't Aileen and I switch seats? And they did, and it changed the whole dynamic in the room. Everybody became aware of what they were doing, and they stopped doing it sort of automatically. And it's important to understand why he did that. Part of the reason why he did that was that he really cared about Aileen, and he didn't like seeing her get ignored. So that's the sort of justice part of it. But he also did it because he just wanted to win the deal. And he knew that Aileen had the expertise that was going to win them the deal, and that if he couldn't get the other side to just listen to Aileen, then they weren't going to win the deal. So that, that was kind of the practical business side of, of things. And so it was hard, actually, to come up with that story because it happens so rarely. You know, it, it seems easy when I tell the story that he could figure out to stand up and switch seats, but it's hard to do in the moment. So what can leaders do to make that kind of thing happen more often? I think one of the most important things that we as leaders can do is to offer 
what I call bias interrupters. And this requires real training and pushing your team a little bit. You got to push your team to do two things. The first is to come up with a shared vocabulary. What are the words that you are going to use to, 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 to interrupt bias? And that not just you, but that your whole team is going to use. And you can't dictate the words. You got to work with your team to come up with a phrase. So some teams that we've worked with just say bias alert. Other teams will say something like, in fact, my editor and I would just say, yo, uh, my co-founder, Trier Bryant, and I will wave a purple flag at each other <laughs> when we're on Zooms and just say, "By you know, purple flag. And that means I've said something biased. And, and she does this to me probably five times a day. And it's, I'm grateful. It's fun. I'm learning something. And I do it to her five times a day. We all have these biases. I was talking to another company the other day, and what they use is a peace sign. So somebody says something biased in a meeting, and somebody holds up two fingers and says, peace. And that's kind of a way of inviting people in to understand that they've said or done something biased. So that's the shared vocabulary, part number one. But there's a second part to this as well, because for most of us, when, when we get feedback that we've said or done something that's biased, it's a hard moment. It's a moment in which we feel ashamed, at least I do. And I, I think if everybody listening can try to identify how does shame feel in your body? Like I feel a tingling behind my knees, kind of the same feeling that I get when I walk too close to the edge of a big drop. Yeah. And so realizing when we feel ashamed is important because when we feel ashamed, we rarely respond well. We get defensive, we, we go on the attack. And so teaching people how to respond when they get this feedback is really helpful. So there's basically two responses that are okay. The first is, thanks for pointing it out. I get it. I'll try not to do it again. And the second is, thanks for pointing it out, but I don't quite know what I did wrong. Can you tell me after the meeting? And the reason to talk about it after the meeting is that bias interrupters should happen twice, at least, in every meeting. In fact, I'm going to be disciplined about pointing my own biases out. And if I have your permission, I'll point yours out because I'm sure we're both going to say something biased. Sure course of this uh, conversation. And, and they need to be pointed out quickly because it, it, if you spend the whole time talking about why it was biased, then you won't get done. And that's the promise of just work. You're, you're going to get done fast and fair. Yeah. You're talking about organizations putting in systems to, to deal with bias. One thing that you mentioned an organization did that I loved, they started something called the Yes, This Really Happened Here Yes. I don't know if they were meetings. Can you talk about that? Because I thought that was awesome. Yeah, it was really, it was really important, I think, for that company and, and, and for the culture at that company. Basically, it was yes at and then the company's name. And people would submit stories about things they had done or things they had noticed happening at the company that week. And there were things like, you know, in the company cafe the the security guards would stop black employees from entering and check their badge, but rarely would they stop white employees. Incidents like on the subway in, in the New York office where, where someone had been sexually harassing a woman on the subway and then realized that she worked at the company. And it made him realize two things. One, he shouldn't do it to anyone, and he definitely shouldn't do it to a colleague. And he confessed this on, you know, sent, sent this in. 
this was about things that were bigger than bias often. It, there was some prejudice, there was some bullying, there was some, some harassment, but it was, it was really saying these things happen and we've got to deal with these things. If we refuse to notice them, then we won't fix them. Yeah, you make the statement for leaders that I loved. Um, you said, if you think bias, prejudice, and bullying don't exist on your team, you're kidding yourself. Yeah. And I know for me, I mean, literally, I mean, this book has been fresh on my mind every day since I've been reading it. I mean, it's it's brought such awareness to my day-to-day interactions at work. It, it's crazy. And so some of these things you're talking about organizationally, I really want to, to implement in our organization because the more everyone becomes aware, the more we can notice, the more we can be bias interrupters. I just think it's awesome. But can you talk a little bit about, you talk about leader's job is to interrupt bias. And one thing you suggest to do is create a code of conduct. You know, I yeah. this was very simple, but I thought it was a powerful thing. Can you talk about that for leaders? Let's sort of pause and think about the difference between bias and prejudice. So bias is sort of an unconscious thing. So if you hold up a mirror, somebody will say, oh, you know, sorry, I didn't mean it that way. Hopefully they'll change it. But if it's prejudice and you hold up a mirror, they'll smile and they'll like what they see. You know, you're like, yeah, straight. That's what I believe. So how do you deal with prejudice when you're a leader? This is tricky because you're not the thought police as a leader. People are going to believe whatever they're going to believe. And people are free to believe what they want to believe in the office. But they are not free to impose those beliefs on other people in the office, especially if they're prejudiced beliefs. And so where are you as a leader going to draw that line in your organization between one person's freedom to believe whatever they want and another person's freedom not to have that belief imposed upon them? And so that's what a code of conduct can do, is it can say, this is, this is how we're going to define this. And you want to make it really simple and short, your code of conduct. If it's like a 30-page document, I promise you nobody will. It's, it's drafted by lawyers. You may as well not write it. It's like a tree falling in the woods because nobody will read it. So what are the five things that you all believe in? And then give examples. Give some examples of what those things mean in different situations. I tried this with my small company, uh, Radical Candor, as I was writing Just Work. And I wrote this sort of long. I mean, it wasn't, I, I was proud of it. I think it was like less than 600 words, but they hated it. And this is really important about writing a code of conduct is that it takes time. And you, as the leader, you're the author, but your team needs to be the editor of the code of conduct. And the editor of a document or a book is the boss of the book. So anyway, the team came back and they said, you know, what we like, we like power is bad. Inclusion is good. Stay open to new perspectives, care personally, challenge directly. And that became sort of the code of conduct. It was short. It was easy to remember. And then there were some examples underneath each of, of how we expected that to play out in our working together. Part of the reason why it's so important to write a good code of conduct is that it gives people an idea how to respond. There's a really interesting business school case study, Harvard Business School case study, about James Burke, who was the CEO of Johnson & Johnson in the the 70s. And he realized that Johnson & Johnson's code of conduct needed to be rewritten because it had been written in the 1850s and it had become this sort of dead document. And so he wanted it to be a living, breathing thing. And it was astounding to me. He spent the first year as CEO spending an enormous amount of time 
going around to all these offices all over the world, getting people to rewrite the code of conduct. I was like, wow, it's an interesting. I didn't know CEOs spent their time that way. And he credits their ability to handle the, the Tylenol poisoning case with the code of conduct. Wow. He said it had a really big impact on the organization's ability to respond in a crisis very productively. And I think the opposite, the opposite, a, a cautionary tale about how not to do a code of conduct, you know, this is debatable, we can debate it, but I think base camp, they stumbled into a code of conduct without quite meaning to. So base camp is this uh, smallish company, 50 person company. And, and they declared nobody's going to talk about politics at our company. And they were, re they were reacting to something that happened rather than having a proactive, thoughtful code of conduct. And as a result of that pronouncement, they lost a third of their employees. So probably not, not what they intended. Wow. You mentioned in your code of conduct, the one of your principles is power is bad. Yeah. I just want to hear you, you talk about this. Um, I wrote down this quote you shared. Uh, Lord Acton said that power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Now, with your experience, you've been around some of the most powerful leaders on the planet. I'm, I'm just curious, what have you learned about leadership and power and how, how can leaders and organizations be better stewards of power? Yeah, I would say hierarchy is kind of inevitable in an organization. So I'm not, uh, I'm not like a holacracy kind of person, but I do believe that power corrupts. Hmm. And, but there's luckily, there's a very simple thing that leaders can do to make sure that power doesn't corrupt them or the managers or anyone really at the company, which is to make sure that you're creating checks and balances. So for example, at one company where I worked, the company systematically stripped decision-making power away from managers. So if you were, if you didn't like your manager and you wanted to switch teams at that company, you could just switch. You didn't even have to ask your manager's permission. And this was really important because we, you know, it's a truism. We know that people join companies and leave bosses. But, but so why don't we let people in our company switch if their bosses, you know, that's going to be the fastest way to know who the good bosses are and who the bad bosses are, or give employees more freedom to choose. Not possible at a tiny little company, but at a big enough company that becomes pretty possible. Uh, the other thing, there was, there was no unilateral hiring decision making that managers had. You had to go through a hiring committee. There was no unilateral firing decision making you had to go you had to go through hr you had to go through a process to fire someone and again you want the process to be lightweight you don't want to get muddy that you know drag nobody hates bureaucracy more than i do but unilateral authority when people are is, is even worse than than a little bit of process uh, you couldn't unilaterally promote anyone so it really was you couldn't unilaterally give somebody a bonus. And that meant that managers, in order to get things done at that company, had to build relationships. They couldn't coerce people. They had to collaborate. And that was really important. It was one of the more innovative places I ever worked. And I think that those checks and balances were really important to the company's ability to innovate. And so it's important at a practical level. And it was important to minimizing, you can never eliminate these things, discrimination, harassment, and physical violations. And that is so important because when, when you have bias or prejudice plus power, 
the net result is often discrimination. So when someone has the power to put their bias or their prejudice into practice and their decision-making about who to hire, who to fire, who to promote, then you get discrimination. And often that looks like unconscious discrimination, by the way. When you tend to bully people and you have power, the bullying crosses the line and becomes harassment, in my experience. And when you have either positional power or physical power, and and you use that to touch someone without their consent, then that's a physical violation. Even, it's interesting, even if it's something like a handshake, as we go back to work in person, we're going to have to rethink the handshake. <laughs> that's going to be kind of a p- painful, but it's also a great opportunity to build a culture of consent, to tell people, look... Mm. Nobody has the right to touch anyone else, even if it's just a handshake. It's your job if you want to touch someone to know whether or not they want to be touched. And if they do want to be touched, that's fine. If they don't, don't touch. And if you're not sure, don't touch. It's not really that complicated. Yeah, talking about checks and balances, you you talk a lot about the book and on how organizations can eliminate or at least minimize bias, prejudice in the hiring process, in the pay process, in the promotion process. You mentioned a little bit about taking the unilateral decision-making power away, but what are some other things uh, that organizations can do to make sure that they're not being biased or prejudiced in their hiring, promoting, et cetera, process? Yeah. I mean, if you take a look at the data, you got to measure what matters. And you do, you can, if, if we can do this for profits, we can do this for diversity, equity, and inclusion. So if you take a look at your hiring data, for example, and you cut it by gender, by race, by any other dimension by which you, you have decided you're going to measure diversity in your organization, and you notice that there are issues then you got to figure out what's going on and fix those issues. So, for example, there was one company that I worked with and the executive team was all men. And they noticed they I mean, they didn't have to do any great analysis on this. <laughs> they had not promoted any women in two years. It was not they didn't have to do this major data poll to see this. And they knew that the problem was not the women at the company. They knew the problem was probably their their promotion, their promotion process, but they didn't know what it was. And so to their credit, they invited me to come and sit in on their promotion meeting to see if I noticed what was going on, what might be happening. And here was an example of the kind of thing that would happen. There were two people up for promotion, a man and a woman, and both of them were much loved leaders on their team, much loved managers. But they referred to the man as a great leader, and they referred to the woman as a real mother hen. <laughs> you know, who are you going to promote? <laughs> oh, man. You know? Yeah. Oh, man is exactly right. Yeah, I'm going to, you know, uh, I'd say is. the same thing. Well, hey, just side note, one of the things implemented immediately, I am trying not to say you guys when I talk to people. It is hard. I'm trying to say you all. Uh, yeah, it's incredibly hard, but I'm committed to any changing. But anyway, thank you for that. Continue. Um, Yeah. This is something, by the way, that I say all the time, oh man, or oh boy. And somebody pointed it out to me. I'm like, why do I say that? You know, and I try to say, oh, wow. now. (laughs) But it's hard to change your vocabulary around these things. It is really, so even after you know it and you're trying to, you're still going to say you guys sometimes. And I think part of, part of this is cutting ourselves a little bit of slack, like you're trying and that's all that anybody can ask of you. So thank you for trying. Yeah. So in this case, 
there was this sort of what I would describe unconscious discrimination that was happening in, in the hiring process. And it was subtle. It was not something that would have been that, that you could have pursued in a court of law. It was, it, it took the leadership deciding we want to change this again, not only for reasons of justice, but also for practical reasons, because we want to hire the best people. And we don't want to make make these sort of biased, we don't want bias to skew our decision making in, in this case. So they no longer referred to the woman as a real mother hen. And then they promoted her, lo and behold. <laughs> like words really matter. Words yeah. really matter. And so beginning to take a look, there's there's another there's another company, there's a story in the book about Salesforce, which took a look at their compensation data and they cut it by gender. And the CEO, Mark Benioff, thought, no way are we, you know, systematically hiring, paying women less than, uh, than men. And, and yet they were. Uh, and it wasn't, again, these, the, they were systematically doing it, but they weren't trying to do it. This is the really key thing is, Intentions don't matter; results do. And wow. uh, and when you're underpaying people, uh, sort of predictably and systematically, even if unintentionally, like that's not okay. You gotta you gotta fix it. And I think in that case, I don't know for sure, but but it looks like from reading the press, they were only looking at they were only looking at salary. And so once you start to look at equity. That is where the real inequities occur, hmm. at least in tech, is in equity packages. And so cut your, your compensation data, cut not only salary, but also bonuses and, and equity and cut it by race, cut it by gender, cut it by, by sexual orientation if you think you're, you're systematically, if unintentionally, uh, discriminating against people who aren't straight, so on and so forth. Yeah, that's such a great challenge to all leaders and organizations. So thank you for writing about that. On the other side of all these issues that you bring up in the book, bias, prejudice, et cetera, there's victims on the other side of it. It's the people that have actually experienced that. And actually, one thing that that blew me away <clears throat> reading your book is, you know, you share so many stories, which I love. And so many of the stories that you would share, I'm like, there's, I can't, I mean, again, <laughs> I, I work in a nonprofit faith-based organization. And I'm thinking, there's no way this happened in an organization. And then when you actually process it and saying like, this woman actually went through this or this actually happened, it's devastating. It's heartbreaking. And, you know, for the victims out there, how, whatever they've experienced, there's a lot of pressure to stay silent. They, they may be afraid to lose their job. They may be afraid of what will happen. What are the repercussions? And so can you just speak for a few minutes to the victims and what would your encouragement be to speak up or to do something? Yeah. I think like so many people who've been harmed by workplace injustice, I, my default was to silence for much of my career. And I realized that at a certain point that that was costing me. Sort of my fears about speaking up were very, very salient in my mind. I knew what, what the risks were, but I wasn't as aware of the risks of not speaking up, I think. And when I became aware of the way that remaining silent hurt my sense of agency, both as a person harmed, but also as an upstander, then I realized I, I needed to figure out how to speak up. And so there's a couple of things that can help. First of all, let's, let's think about bias, prejudice, bullying. You know, what can you say when you don't know what to say? I think if it, if you think it's bias, try an I statement. I don't 
you know, I, I don't think you will treat me seriously when you call me honey or what, you know, whatever it is. But an I statement invites the person in to understand things from your perspective. And it doesn't escalate. It's a gentle thing. And usually, usually the per- you do take a risk with your I statement, but usually the person responds reasonably well, better than you expect. What, what do you do, however, if it is not bias, but prejudice? So for example, one of the stories I tell in the book is I was chit-chatting with a guy before a meeting and he said to me, well, my wife doesn't work because it's better for the children. And I sort of assumed it was bias. I assumed he didn't really think I was neglecting my children. So I made a little joke. And I said, yeah, I decided to show up at work this morning because I wanted to neglect my children. <laughs> and I was, yeah, I was expecting them to have your response. And yeah. he said, oh, yeah. But no, he dug in. He was like, oh, no, Kim, I had these studies. It's really bad that you're working with, with such little kids. So now I realize this is not unconscious bias. This is a conscious belief he has. And I also know that if I don't challenge it, it's going to hurt my career because he had some decision making about who got which clients and some of the better clients were not in the same city. And so he was going to prevent me because he didn't think I should travel. And for some reason, he thought he got to decide how I raised my kids and conducted my career. So anyway, I, so I looked at him. In this case, there was a clear code of conduct at the company. And I said, it is an HR violation for you to tell me that I'm neglecting my children. So that had the desired effect. Like that shut him down and scared him a little bit, which I needed to do. I needed to do, frankly. And then I said to him, look, I'm not going to make a big deal of this with HR, but I think we can agree it is my decision together with my spouse, how we raise our kids, and it is your decision together with your partner how you raise your kids. And I said, furthermore, I'm going to guess that you don't want to read my studies that say the opposite, And but I'll read yours if you'll read mine. Neither one of us wanted to read each other's studies, and so we did. We just agreed to. And so you know, there are going to be times where you may want to have an argument and you may want to read each other's studies, but, but usually at work, you just want to get done. You you know, you don't want to get in this argument, this sort of theoretical argument about child rearing or whatever the prejudice belief may be. And so, so that's where an it statement and an it statement, even if you don't have a clear code of conduct, an it statement can appeal to common sense or it can appeal to the law. So for example, my business partner, Trier Bryant, has a story about about a time when she was interviewing someone. And the very best candidate was a black woman who was wearing her hair out naturally. And the hiring manager said, oh, we can't hire her because of her hair, (laughs) you know. And uh, I, as an upstander in that situation, or Trier as someone who was who was harmed by by this, you know, this prejudice belief, which also, by the way, was discrimination because she was the hiring manager. She could decide not to hire this woman. It is ridiculous not to hire the most qualified candidate because of their hair. That's the sort of common human sense it's statement. Yeah. Or it is an HR violation. Or in this case. She could have also said, it is illegal, or I could have also said, it is illegal not to hire someone because of their hair, which it is in the state of California and in a bunch of other states in this country. So that's an it statement. But what do you do when it's bullying? When the person, you don't think there's any real belief here. The person's just acting like a jerk. The person's intentionally trying to cause you harm. So in this case, they're meaning harm. 
In this case, I think a you statement is really helpful. You can't talk to me like that. Or if that seems like it might escalate, what's going on for you here? And I learned this from my daughter, actually, when she was in third grade and she was being bullied on the playground. I was advising her to use an I statement and tell this. I said, why don't you tell this little kid? I feel sad when you blah, blah, blah. And she banged her fist on the table and she said, mom, he is trying to make me feel sad. Why would I tell him he succeeded? And I'm like, wow. that is a really good point. <laughs> you shouldn't tell him he succeeded. Like there's no percentage in that. So sort of pushing back, using that you statement. If an I statement invites someone in, a you statement pushes them away. And you, you may not be sure whether what's happening is bias, prejudice, or bullying. Take your best guess and either say I, it, or you, and then just notice what comes out of your mouth next. So that's one, one bit of advice I have for what to say when you don't know what to say. But we can also talk about this other discrimination, harassment, and physical. Yeah, yeah, I would love to. You know, how do you, there were times in in the book where you shared there were situations where you left organizations because you were on the other side of that, but then there was times you stayed and, and things changed. So yeah, I would love to hear you speak into that. Yeah. What do you do when power enters the equation? Like if it's bias, prejudice, or bullying, it's usually a peer or something. But but what if you're not getting promoted? What if someone who has power over you is is saying things, is making sexual jokes or saying things that are racist or something like that? And it feels more like harassment than just bullying. Or what if there's a physical violation? So I think in, in these situations, what you really want to do is, first of all, you want to know what your exit options are. I think especially right now, we're in the middle of this pandemic, the economy is wobbly, and everybody feels anxious. And it's, it's easy to feel trapped. In the best of times, it's easy to feel trapped in a job, and these are not the best of times. And so one thing I would really encourage people to do is to make sure they understand that if if they did have to quit their job, what could they do? Is there another job available for them? Uh, how long would it take them to get another job? How much savings do you have? Just really make sure that you know what your exit options are because nine times out of 10, we feel more trapped in a job than we actually are. One of the most important things you can do to decide how you're going to respond is to know what your exit options are. I also think it's really important to build solidarity. When these things happen to us, and they do happen, I mean, all of us experience some form of workplace injustice at some point in our careers, I think. When these things happen to us, it's so easy to feel gaslit and to blame ourselves and not to understand that the problem is not us. The, pro- the problem is either the system or someone within the system behaving badly or both. And so talking to other people who may have experienced the same thing, reading, uh, reading things is really important to do, sort of building solidarity. Another thing that is useful to do is to document what's going on. Even if you don't think you're going to wind up suing, uh, I think it is really a good idea and this also helps with gaslighting is to say, you know, just jot down this, you know, at in the meeting at three o'clock, so-and-so said such and such and uh, jot it down. And if you can, if there's somebody you trust, create a contemporaneous record, which basically just means send them an email. 
saying what happened. Can you believe this happened? So that, and, and do that obviously from a personal account that you have exclusive control over. Because it's so easy to, to feel confused about what's going on. These, these situations are very disorienting and somehow just the act of documenting it can be reassuring. Uh, and then, you know, in some cases, you may want to explore legal options. And uh, there's a lot of thoughts in the book about how to do that and talking to different lawyers and not being intimidated by the legal system. I mean, the legal system is terribly flawed, but you can use it to your advantage. So educate yourself about those options. And also, I think just telling your story can be really important. And you can tell your story publicly. Social media, I think, has created a lot of problems, but it has also created some some justice in the world. Uh, I, I don't think, for example, Susan Fowler's story, uh, Susan Fowler was an engineer at Uber. I don't think it would have taken off in the same way if it weren't for social media. So I think it is, it can be very useful to tell your story. But the thing that we forget about, one of the most effective tools at our disposal is often having a direct conversation with someone. You may not, I don't want to tell you you should do that. I, I definitely don't want to should all over anyone. It may not be safe to do it, but it's often safer than it feels to, to go have a direct conversation with someone. And it's, it's often also an act of kindness to go. Maybe they're not aware of what they're doing. Yeah. And so if, if you've been on the other side of any of these issues, I would encourage you one, rewind all of the past three to five minutes and listen to that again. And leaders, again, I would really encourage you, this book is a, is a game changer for you and your organization. So make sure you get it. I have one more question uh, on the book, and then I'll leave it open-ended with anything you want to uh, leave leaders with. But uh, you had an interesting viewpoint on alcohol. And uh, yeah. you've been in some some cultures where alcohol is a thing uh, at work. Yeah. And so I just want to hear you talk about alcohol in the workplace. You know, I just don't think it's a good idea. I was, ta- I was, I was speaking with the CEO of a large media company, and he said, I read your book, and I've banned alcohol from the company. <laughs> I'm like, oh, no, people are going to hate me. Kim Scott banning um, alcohol yeah. everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> But I got to say, the things, the harm that I have seen alcohol do to people in the workplace is enormous. And the benefits are pretty minuscule. And so if you do sort of an ROI analysis on alcohol at work events, it just, it's not, it's, there's a very poor ROI. Uh, the, the, some of the things I've seen, I've, I've seen, I've seen a guy get drunk at an, at an it's the off sites that are often the, the <laughs> worst offenders. He got drunk and he punched a cop and he spent a night in jail, like not helpful for anyone. Yeah. I saw another guy get so drunk that he wound up defecating all over himself at a work event, like not helpful for anyone. I've seen people throw up at work. I've seen a woman pass out after a work party in the office. And and security called her boss at three in the morning, you know, career limiting move for sure. Also, the you know, the company didn't handle it at all. Well, they should have called an ambulance right away, but they were afraid they would be, you know, it's like bad, 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 bad. Luckily, she was okay in the end. But 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 like, why put yourself or your company in that situation? I've seen uh, a, a rape in the office after it's it's like these are serious 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 
problems that alcohol has caused. So I, why, why do it? I don't, I don't get it. I don't see the ROI on the booze in the office. I mean, if you want to drink, go drink with friends. I think there's also, by the way, the alcohol in the office is part of this. It's very common here in Silicon Valley this idea that you're always at work, that there's this, hmm. the, the lack of boundaries between work and your personal life is, is problematic. I mean, you should have friends that are not your colleagues at work and, and you should get away from work. If, if we want to be creative, we have to recreate. Hmm. And, uh, and so I, I don't, you know, look, I, I spent a lot of my career drinking way too much. I'm not judging anybody for drinking too much, but it's just the ROI isn't there on it. Yeah. Thank you for sharing your perspective on that. Before we jump into what I call the lightning round, anything else you want to leave leaders with when it comes to, to just work? One of the perspectives that I find troublesome right now is that People are, and this was part of the base camp case, people want to not talk about it. And they view these conversations as a distraction. And the conversations about a problem are not the distraction. The problem is the distraction. And this is a solvable problem. Like we can create just workplaces. We can create equitable work environments in which everybody can just work and we can all do the best work of our lives and we can enjoy working together. This is, this is something that we can do. And why wouldn't you do that? Even if it does mean having some hard conversations and enduring some awkward moments. Yeah. And, and as I've processed the book, you know, I think about leaders and organizations. Sometimes I, I just think they don't know what to do about some of these things. And yeah. that's what I, I love about your book. It's, it, it has great stories in it, but it's extremely practical. And, and leader, if you're listening to this and you're saying, well, I'd like to deal with this, but I don't know where to start. This book is where to start. Uh, it's helped me. So that would be my encouragement to everyone listening and watching. I couldn't agree more wholeheartedly. Thank you. <laughs> hey, you're welcome. Are you ready for the lightning round? I'm ready. All right. These are just a bunch of fun, quick questions I ask leaders in every interview. Number one, what is the best advice you've ever received and who gave it to you? Don't forget to quit. And Gretchen Rubin, uh, who wrote The Happiness Project, gave that advice to me when I was really miserable at work and I was not exploring my exit options. So, uh, and, and that has really helped me in my career more than once. If you could put a quote on a billboard for everyone to read, what would it say? I have a terrible memory for exact quotes, but it would be from Viktor Frankl. And it would be like your, your freedom is your choice in how you respond to whatever happens to you. That's where our freedom is in choosing how to respond. Best purchase you've made in the last year for $100 or less? You know... I bought this, it's like a Gator coffee mug and a little f coffee filter. <laughs> and I love this thing. And I, you just pour hot water over it. It's much better. No plastic. No, I love this thing. Do you have a favorite book or two that's impacted you in your life other than your own? Yeah, Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning will we'll wave a little bias flag on, on <laughs> the title of my favorite book. Uh, but but I love that book. Uh, George Eliot's uh, book, Middle March, Virginia Woolf's book, Orlando, and Robertson Davies' The Deptford Trilogy. That's actually three books. Novels are my favorite, by and large. Do you listen to podcasts? You know, I, I listen to novels on Audible, actually. 
for the most part. That is that is that when, when I have free time, that's what I listen. To. But I listen to your podcast, of course. There we go. Well, thank you, Kim. <laughs> thank you. Uh, you have a, a, a very interesting background and story. I'm just curious, what do you wish people knew about your journey that they may not know? I think the Russia, my experience in Russia had a, an enormous impact on me, uh, both as a person and as a, as a professional. I think that sort of the, the terrible system uh, that, well, when I got there, it was the Soviet Union, the terrible system and the damage that it did to, to human productivity and human happiness was profound. And taking the time to understand how that could have happened and also how different but similar things might be happening in our own culture has been really uh, kind of the thing that, that, that drives me. What's your greatest challenge right now? My greatest challenge right now, I have a tendency to say yes to everything. And <laughs> first of all, I want to say enormous compassion for everyone who has suffered in quarantine. But I will confess that for me, quarantine has been a giant relief because it has said no to everything mm, wow. for me. And it has, has cleared my decks. I was able to finish writing just work. May, I might not have finished writing it on time mm. if it weren't for quarantine. And so I, I want to make sure that I, that I learn something from that. And I'm excited the world's about to open back up, but I want to make sure that I say no to more things. That I, I, I tweeted, I'm going to start an infrequent flyer program. <laughs> That's beautiful. Um, and thank you for saying yes to this podcast. Yeah, I, well, I'm always, I'm here at home. It's, I love talking about this stuff. So thank you for inviting me. This is the kind of thing I really enjoy. Oh, fantastic. What is uh, your biggest leadership pet peeve? My biggest leadership pet peeve is when leaders try to control. And this has happened a lot in quarantine where some leaders have even insisted that people install spyware on their computers so that they can see how many hours people are working. Like Jeez. that just, that is awful. That's crazy. I haven't heard that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm grateful I'm not under a controlling leader. Yes. Um, <laughs> you had gotten to spend time with a lot of incredible leaders. And I'm just curious, when you get to have dinner or lunch with someone that you admire, is there a question that you always ask no matter what? I try to be open to what they want to talk about. So I try to go into those conversations. I think especially especially when you're meeting with someone who is is has a lot of power in the world this is this is an important thing you want to get on a level playing field if you have the power you want to put it down if you don't have the power wow. you want to pretend that that power doesn't exist and you want to you want to sort of approach them as a fellow human being in the moment so i, I try to just understand what they want to talk about I'm curious, this is, I'm just making this up. You've worked at Google, Twitter, and Apple. So you've been around some of the world's biggest leaders. What's one thing you learned from each of those experiences? I think that the importance of humility is enormous. Hmm. And early in my career, I had a mentor who said, you know, when you're succeeding, you're never as good as everybody says you are. And when you're failing, you're never as bad as everybody hmm. says you are. You know, Twitter in particular went, had some some road as the as Dick Costello, when he was CEO of Twitter, said the hero had roller coaster in the press, 
And, and he told me at one point, he said, you know, Bezos had written on his whiteboard when, when Amazon was in trouble, you are not your stock price. Wow. And I think remembering, I hope he's remembering that he's not as great as he, <laughs> that it, he still remembers that. Yeah, that's still uh, on his whiteboard, yeah. Yeah, I hope it's still, it's even more important now. But I think the importance of, of staying humble, I think Tim Cook does a remarkable job of this. I think Larry and Sergey at Google also, they stood up week after week after week and just took hard questions, never complained if the questions were rude. They were eager and open for feedback. And I think that kept them humble and, and real. If you could go back and have coffee with your 20-year-old self, what would you tell her? I would tell her to do what she really wanted to do and not to pay as much attention to what she was supposed to do. I think especially it's, it's, I think it's especially true. I think it was probably, it was a little bit true when I was uh, sort of graduating from college and taking a look at building a resume. I think it's even harder for 20 year olds today is there's this, you know, you've got to get on this path. And if you get off the path, you're a hose. There's this, and it's part of this 1% problem. It's like, you're either going to get left behind or you're going to get more than your fair share. And it doesn't have to be that way. I, w- I wish that I had spent more time writing earlier in my career. Hmm. I sort of felt like I had to make enough money to retire before I could do what I really wanted to do. And I don't think it was quite that dire. I could have done it sooner. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you got to it because these books, again, phenomenal. So you're a great writer. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah. And one day at the other end of your life, when you're at the end of your life, what do you want to look back? What do you want to be remembered for? And what do you want your legacy to be? You know, the, the book, the, I want to, I really do want to write these novels. And, and the question, the question that I am always wondering is how to live and why? Like, how can we live in accordance to our ideals, but also how can we be happier? I think we're so focused on achievement that we have, we've lost the thread. Uh, So I hope at least in my own life that I can regain that thread and maybe by sharing how I did that with others, I can help other people find their threads too. Anything else you want to leave leaders with today? I think the most important thing uh, that I want to leave leaders with is take the first step in noticing what is wrong in your environment and fixing it. Like identify bias, identify prejudice, identify bullying, put some checks and balances in place so that you don't have as much discrimination and harassment and, and make sure that you're creating a culture of consent. We have this real opportunity as we're coming back together physically to really create a culture of consent. These things are happening. You may not want to believe they're happening at your company, but all of these things are happening, unfortunately. And so go look for them and fix them before they blow up in your face. Well, Kim, thank you so much for the conversation. This was rich. The book was fantastic. I said that enough this interview, but uh, just thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. Hey, Leader, thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Kim. I hope that you enjoyed it as much as I did. And you can find ways to connect with her and links to everything that we discussed in the show notes at l3leadership.org forward slash 283. And again, Leader, I just want to encourage you, go out and buy both of her books that will add massive value to your leadership journey and to your team's journey as well. And if the episode helped you, it would mean the world to me if you would share your key takeaways on social media or share it with other leaders that could add value to. And that helps us advance our mission here at L3 as well. So thank you in advance for that. 
And leader, I'm always going to challenge you that if you want to 10x your growth this year, I want to challenge you to either launch or join an L3 Leadership Mastermind Group. Mastermind groups have been the greatest source of growth in my life over the last five years. And if you're unfamiliar with what they are, they're groups of six to 12 leaders that meet together for at least one year in order to help each other grow, achieve their goals, and to do life together. So if you're interested in learning more about masterminds, go to l3leadership.org forward slash masterminds. And as always, I like to end every episode with a quote, and I quote Gerald Brooks all the time, but here's another good one from him. He said this, he said, you can tell that you are a leader if you are doing things that are not about you, not for you, and not helping you. I love that. Leader Laura and I love you so much. We believe in you. Keep leading, keep making a difference, and don't quit. And we will talk to you next episode.